Welcome, everyone. Glad you joined us in the midst of a most difficult time for our country. Uh, I hope your time with us today will lend you some comfort and some strength for your days ahead. Today, we're continuing our current teaching series, I Am. And in this series, we've based it on Jesus's I Am statements, seven of them found in the book of John. Now, in these statements, Jesus wants us to know who he is, who he says he was. And he does so without reservation in a bold, mind-blowing way in these statements. They're the signature statements of Jesus, as we've been saying week to week. Now, the statement we're looking at today is perhaps out of all the seven I am statements, the one that has caused and causes the most controversy over the years. It causes people to push back in the days of Jesus and even running up to today. Now, there are a few things you would say were significant leading up to Jesus' words in John chapter 14. Uh, little things like Jesus having dinner with his disciples, what you and I would know as the Last Supper. And during that dinner, Jesus, have, Jesus having some small talk with his followers, first inferring to them that he would lose his life, then telling us and sharing, you know, intimately with those around him that Judas was going to betray him, and of course, predicting Peter's denial. That's some good dinner talk, huh? Now, all of this is happening in the shadows of Jesus going to the cross. Now, everything Jesus must have told his disciples would have been staggering to them, would have, been, would have brought confusion and filled their minds with anxiety. Coming out of that time, Jesus now kicks off what we know as John chapter 14. So John chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus knew his followers were troubled already. In fact, they were probably terrified. Don't let your heart be troubled. That statement in the original Greek literally means stop letting trouble come upon your heart. Jesus was asking his followers to trust in God even when they couldn't see his reasons, even though they could not understand what was happening. You wonder, Jesus being fully God and fully man, was telling his disciples the same thing that he was telling himself in the light of all the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that would soon come upon him. We're living in very troubling times. Every day I say to my kids the same thing. I've never seen anything like this. We have some significant issues upon us, and they seem to be, grow they seem to be growing day by day, hour to hour. It's not easy. Now, for some of us, it's not a matter of not letting our hearts be troubled. Our hearts seemingly are already troubled. A friend of mine, uh, he uh, lives out in California, and amongst some of the other things he does, he's a talented guy, he builds statues of insects, which he constructs from uh, car parts and motorcycle parts. Um, and he received an invitation to attend a festival called Burning Man. It takes place, I think it's in the Nevada desert or Western California. It's attended by nearly 60,000 people. When the tickets go out online, I believe in 10 or 15 minutes, they're gone. 
and, and what's incredible is the 60,000 people de de descend on a city that is built up from scratch every year. And then when the festival is over, they take it down. They say not even a, a cup is left behind. And at the end of the festival, certain parts of the city, specific ones, are burnt down, hence Burning Man. Now, my friend told me that when he pulled up to the gate, they build a massive wall and a gate and people are in towers. He said, Dave, when I pulled up to the entrance of the city, I'm greeted, I was greeted with this statement, welcome to Burning Man, leave your default world behind. So a default mode is what exists or happens unless or until someone or something changes it. The current crisis is upon us and it has jarred us from our default mode. It has removed much of the distractions that we have had in place. We now realize we're a bit more vulnerable than we had realized, right? And how temporary things can be and how, as much as we try, we're really not in control. And when we read these words from Jesus, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What Jesus is saying is, now, trust in my presence. Jesus is putting himself on an equal plane with God. Jesus is saying, I am God. He's saying, believe in me. He's reminding us that God is with us and to have faith in God in these most troubling times. Now, that mindset will protect our minds, will guard our minds and our hearts. If you're here today and you're somewhat overwhelmed with the situation before us, that's so understandable. Just pause. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm not saying don't recognize that there is trouble. I'm not saying don't deal with and address what's going on. Don't give consideration to the next steps you have to take to try and put things in order. But don't let your heart be troubled. Then in verse 2, we see this, you know, some common words in the scripture. Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the place, you know the way to the place where I am going. Now, you might recognize these words from Jesus. Where have you heard them? At a funeral, right. Do you know that these words of Jesus aren't really speaking to what most people think, what you might think? Meaning Jesus isn't speaking to a time of dying or passing on or mourning. Jesus is talking about marriage and the beginning of new life and relationship here in these verses. Now, we don't get it at first glance because in our culture, engagement and marriage is very different than the way the culture treated it and approached it in Jesus' day. In Jesus' culture, when a man and a woman were betrothed, I, I've been practicing that. My wife helped me. She says it a lot better than I do. But when they were betrothed, it meant they were legally married, but they had not consummated their relationship, meaning they hadn't had sexual intimacy with one another. Now, during that betrothed period, the husband would leave his wife with her parents, and then he'd go off now to kind of start to, you know, establish them, and he'd grab a property, usually on his father's property, and he'd build them a house, a home, and he'd prepare a place for him and his wife now to live. 
he would also ensure that he had, you know, established a vocation and would care for his wife. The days would pass and she would have this great expectation and anticipation. Once completed, the husband would go, take his betrothed wife from her parents' home. He'd go there with a procession of people and he'd take her to their new place and there they would consummate their marriage, come together spiritually and emotionally and physically. And then after that, they'd come out and they'd join with family and friends, two people who experienced a oneness, a deep intimacy, and then they would party for seven days. So Jesus is telling his followers, we're in the betrothed period right now, and I'm building you on my father's property an eternal place to go, a place for you and I. And I'm going to go there soon. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you there with me. This is all wedding language. Now, the reason for this depiction of a relationship, our relationship with Jesus, is because in God's economy, marriage is a picture of a oneness, spiritually and emotionally. It's a picture of a complete union between two people, two lives on every level. It is the closest example that God can offer us to illustrate the kind of relationship God desires to have with you and with me. So when Jesus is telling his followers, listen up, we're going to be one, you and I. His followers, they're like, you know, they, 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 they understand what he's talking about is he's talking about marriage. I mean, it's, it's in their culture. They just don't get why he's telling it to them. They can't, and they certainly can't imagine in the Jewish culture and the way God was approached, they can't even fathom this oneness, this intimacy with the one true God. So their heads are spinning. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm preparing a place for you. We will be one. I am with you. Notice what happens next in John chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? So Thomas asks Jesus a question. It's a reasonable question. Jesus answers and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So our, so our I am statement for today is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now Thomas straight up looks at Jesus and he says, you know, just what are you talking about? I, I mean, I'm not understanding what you're saying. And I really appreciate that God revealed to us in the scripture this exchange between Jesus and Thomas. Don't be afraid to ask God when you don't understand something that's happening and that's taking place in your life or in a life of someone you, you, you love dearly, especially when you're in the middle of a trying time and your head is just spinning and you, you sense you're overwhelmed. God, what, what are you doing? What, what do you want me to understand? What do you want me to know? Why? I just don't get this. You see, sometimes we deny ourselves the right to have these God-given feelings huh, and thoughts. And as a result, what happens is, you know, we think, no, I'm, I'm just going to keep it together. I'm a, I'm a strong, good Christian. And, and we suppress these thoughts. And it, maybe at times we attach a cliche or a platitude 
And then what happens is we, we gradually get discouraged. We get frustrated. Our faith becomes kind of dull and, and it becomes very weary. Today, go before God. Tell him. I don't understand. Ask him a question. Have a heart-to-heart moment with God. Know God and may he know you. Be open and honest with God and yourself. So I mentioned my friend from California and the Burning Man Festival. So it is, as I mentioned, it's incredibly interesting. The people that come there, many of them are extraordinarily creative. Uh, The structures they build... Uh, this city is massive. It's a massive city. Uh, he sent me a picture from, a, from some drone up above. It, looks like, it looked like close encounters of the third kind. I mean, that, that's years ago, so I don't know if everybody's going to get that. The people are also, I'm going to say, eccentric, huh? And drugs are prevalent and clothes are optional. Now, Burning Man would like make Woodstock look like a Christian marriage retreat. Now, my friend to... My delight called me up and said, hey, would you like to go with me? I mean, I'm psyched. I'm, I'm just like, wow. So I go and I, you know, I run across the house and I tell my wife and I tell her everything I told you about Burning Man. And then she's not impressed, not one bit. And I, and I, and I tell her, I, you know, Ben's inviting me and I can go. And she just looks at me with a blank stare and just turns and she walks away. Now, for a second or two, I thought about following her to ask her the question, huh? Because, you know, you know, then I realized that I, I sort of knew the answer she was going to give me, right? And it probably would be best, in my best interest, to put my questions aside along with my ambitions to attend Burning Man. Sometimes I wonder, we don't ask God certain questions because we're uneasy with the answers that he might give to us. It might not be what we want, but it's definitely what we need to know. Maybe we're afraid of the answer because it's going to run inconsistent with the assumptions we have about God, about our situation, how we've been kind of keeping it together in our head. Maybe deep down we, we don't want to be aware of certain ambitions we might have and how they've kind of really come up to the front and we're living in that default mode and really you know, striving for these ambitions while we're kind of burying some other really important things in our life. God and people. Ask God questions today. Unlike my wife, he's not going to be upset with you. God, what am I doing? God, I don't get it. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those words, as I mentioned earlier, are some of the most controversial words ever spoken. This statement in our day, it's just countercultural. It clashes and smashes with culture. It, you know, our culture really rejects. And I'm not saying this in sort of a condescending way or a you know, any, any sort of a, a, a sarcastic way. It, it's just our culture, from my perspective, seems to really be adverse or reject any one way or one truth. Our culture, you know, more or less embraces relativism and pluralism. So really to say one way or to say no one can come to the Father except through me, 
Wow, this is countercultural. To some people, it's, it's offensive nowadays. But Jesus was, in his very day, when he walked the face of the earth, countercultural, and Jesus and his teachings still are countercultural. Not so much that we're proud of that, it's just, it's just something that's a fact and we want to be aware of. And Jesus now speaks so exclusively, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What's, what's inspiring here to me in the midst of this controversial statement and what's appealing to me, and, and it's really one of the things I kind of, when I was, like I said, 28 years old, uh, not living, having anything to do with God, it's one of the things that attracted me to Christianity. You see, what Jesus is speaking to when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's not a set of rules. It's not a religion. The way Jesus speaks of is Jesus. It's him. Jesus is the way because Jesus is the truth because Jesus is the life. Not a life, not your life, but a life. I mean, but life itself. True life, full life, abundant life is only found in Jesus. Jesus says no one can come to the Father except through me. Why would he say that? H how can he say that? That he is the only way to God. Now earlier, I had mentioned that while Jesus was sharing his last meal with his disciples, his followers, he looked into the future and he foresaw some things. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And what did, he, what did he see when he looked in the hours ahead, the days ahead? He saw Judas betraying him, and it happened. He saw Peter denying him, and it happened. He inferred that he would lose his life, and it happened. So you would think, having that ability, that Jesus was able to look forward and see himself praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he would see himself in a heap of agony and emotional distress to the point of capillaries bursting in his body, blood oozing out of the pores of his skin. The Bible tells us that he was under such duress that he sweated drops of blood in that garden of Gethsemane. Do you know why he was sweating blood? Because he was in the process of trying to find another way another way for you and me and all of humanity to get back to the garden, to get back into the glorious presence of God. He even asked his God, his Father, our God, to make a different way. It was not God's will that any other way be considered other than the way, which was Jesus willingly laying down his life for you and for me. The reason Jesus can say, I am the only way, is because being fully man and fully God, he in agony called out to God and said, can you make another way? Can there be another way? More than this way, a different way. And in the end, he willingly gave his life to make that one way, meaning he became the way. We might not grasp this at all. We might not be warmed up to the idea that Jesus is the only way. We, we, we'd almost prefer to some extent or another, that there could be other options. It seems more reasonable and compassionate. It sounds easier to explain uh, in conversation with others. But understand this. Jesus, God loved the world so much 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus laid down his life, and in doing so, he set himself apart, and therefore he can make the claim that I am the only way. Now, if you're in here and you just don't agree with Jesus on this, and you don't agree with this one way to get to heaven, so heck, you, you might not even be interested in getting to heaven, right? But think about it. If there is a God, and, and, and this story of Christ and giving his life is purpose that you could have relationship with God and that no one can have relationship with God except through Jesus. I mean, you would think that such a privilege, such a treasure, if there is a God, and I believe there is, what a privilege, what a treasure to be able to have a deep, intimate relationship with that God. You would think it would just demand such a price and Jesus giving his life and becoming the way was that price that you and I could be in the position, the posture to go before God and have this, this closeness, this oneness with him. The reason you might not have peace right now, and I'm making an assumption that some of you might not have peace, that some of you might be very unsettled. Peace is not, you know, the weather's calm, Things are all cool. Everything's in place. Peace is, to me, this deep, deep, overwhelming sense that all is well within the depth of who you are. I'm going to say it's, it's a closeness with God. The closer you are to God, the more peace you have. Huh? Meaning it's not circumstantial peace here today, gone tomorrow, as I think many of us are experienced right now. Jesus wants to give you peace today. It's not the peace that we get from this world or from circumstances or accomplishments. And he can do that because he is the way. This is a peace that escapes us, many of us. It's a true peace. You know, I didn't get to go to the Burning Man Festival. Someday, maybe, huh? My friend did, and he's gone pretty much every year. Matter of fact, I'm kind of bragging here. This past year, he got a special invitation because he had this idea to build a giant. This has nothing with what we're preaching about today, but I'm just going to toss it out there. He, uh, he uh, submitted a, a plan to build a giant pinball machine that would require, I think, uh, four players on each side. And uh, they liked it so much, they approved it, and they gave him all the funds to build it, and he brought it there. And I wasn't there. I'll get over it. Anyway, so... He, he do, even though I'm not there, he does send me pictures of what's going on each day. No nudies. And he took a picture of this structure called the temple. It's at the center of the festival. He explained that people would enter the temple and write on the walls. He said he, he was giving some attention to what people wrote. And he said almost everything that he read was about pain and regret attached to people's lives. Eventually, he realized what the temple was all about. And it was a place for people to come in to express their pain, their loss, mistakes, regrets, uh, ones they brought upon themselves, maybe ones that came externally from others into their life or from circumstances. He shared with me that every time he went into the temple, huh? he would see people crying, sitting down, walking around, just in tears as they wrote on the wall. Now, 
at the end of the festival, and this is, a, this is a significant part of the festival, other than burning down, you know, that huge structure, that straw man, this is one of the more significant parts of the festival. At the end of it, the people burn down the temple. It symbolizes, or it's intended to symbolize the erasure of their pains and regrets. It's intended to give them peace. Now, I wonder, and again, I'm, I'm just putting it out there, not looking to be uh, insightful or condescending, but I wonder, as these persons go back to their life, I wonder if they go kind of back into that default world that those same choices and way of life brings back a lot of that pain. And the same manner in how they dealt with that pain and managed that pain in their life also comes back, and their habits and ways of being come back. The default mode is what exists or happens unless someone or something changes it. <laughs> Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is calling you to him. He is calling you to change. He's calling you to peace. He's calling you to a new life. You see, Jesus isn't a symbol. Jesus is a savior. And he's here with you, calling you to peace, everlasting peace. He's made a way for you because he is the way. He's made a way for you to have meaning in life. He's made a way for you to have fulfillment in life, to expand your life, to have eternal life. I deeply believe that we can not get to the depth of meaning as a human being apart from knowing God because God created us. Where did our conscience come from? Where did our desire to love and, and be loved come from? As I say, you know, we're, we're not just matter like this table. We're spiritual beings created by a spiritual God. Today, I'm leaving that default mode. Today, I'm just leaving, you know, and putting aside those constructs that have kind of just really dwarfed me from becoming the person that God has called me to be. Today, I'm not going to live from fear, but from faith in that there's something greater out there and that I can be a greater someone in that something. Today, I am one with Jesus. To God be the glory.